Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future and to this special International Women's Day episode with Cassandra Stavrou, the founder of Propercorn. I'm sure we've all come across Propercorn because it is one of the most iconic brands in the United Kingdom. It has become a staple part of the meal deal available in supermarkets up and down the country. And Cassandra was very much at the forefront of the healthy snacking revolution that we've seen in the United Kingdom, which she talks us through and how she has started that 10 years ago. And it is our marquee episode of International Women's Day. We've been having an International Women's Week almost here by highlighting some of our favourite episodes of the inspirational women that we've had on the podcast since we started 18 months ago. You can't argue with the numbers when it comes to female entrepreneurship and you see the huge disparity that exists in the funding world with just a couple of percent from angel investors and venture capital going into female entrepreneurs. So that's why we're highlighting them on this show because it's a small thing that we can do and we will always endeavour to have a balanced guest list that come on this show to talk about the jobs and the companies that they're building. I've been doing some data crunching of our own for this podcast and since we started we have had about 200 pitches or so for various guests from PR firms and so on. 98% of those are for men. And that is a small indicator of the challenges that still exist out there. So I just want to make a special plea on this episode that if you or you know of an inspirational female voice that has not had much media exposure, write to us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co and we'll look and see whether we can bring them onto the show at some point. It's something that we try and ask all the sort of female entrepreneurs that come on to pass the mic to other female entrepreneurs that they have come across. Because I think this issue is so important and it's something that we have to battle on an almost daily basis. It's something I've become even more attuned of with a second daughter arriving next month, that it's the smaller things that you notice. And this is just my attempt to try and combat it. Because Fundamentally, it's a massive issue for the UK economy because we're clearly not inspiring the same amount of entrepreneurs and enterprise as we could be doing. That is a massive untapped pool of talent. And so, as I say, this is my attempt to try and do something to solve that in my own small way. It's brilliant to have Cassandra on and talk about how she built an incredible company and what her plans are for proper corn from now. But before diving in, I wanted to thank our headline partners, The Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I'm proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series, and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett, Simon Rogerson, onto today's show. 
Cassandra, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs. Oh, hi, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. So tell us what is behind the name Proper? Because it's become one of the most iconic brands in the UK, not just in food and drink, actually, one of the most recognisable brands that's out there in the UK. Where did the idea for Proper come from? Well, initially it was, and we were called Proper Corn when we were just popcorn. And obviously, you know, beyond it being having the word popcorn in it, proper and done properly was um, and is our ethos. So this idea of um, snacks, snacks, you know, it's, it's not saving lives, you know, and I've never ever pretended that, you know, I always sort of said to the team, this isn't, we're not, we're not out here saving lives. Snacks aren't important. They're just the bits in between the much more important moments of your life. But even those things should be done properly. Um, it's, you know, it's the everyday somethings that should still be done properly, that should be better for you, better for the planet, created by people who have a strong set of values. And so that ethos of done properly was something that we, it became a mantra and uh, was the starting point for every brief, every new bit of product innovation. And, and today is still very much front and centre of the brand. One of the interesting things is a lot of food, traditional food brands have gone on great innovation spurts in the last 10 years. You were right at the beginning of that. You took what was, you know, a staple snack and you sort of say there that something that happens between the main moments in life and that's that's true but the entrepreneurial spark that you had to take something which came in just two flavors and pretty much had done for a century and take that and kind of it's it's not disrupt but it's almost think about it conceptually in a whole new different way how did you think of that what were the first moments when you thought I've got an idea here yeah I mean I've always wanted to run my own business for as long as I can remember and there's various kind of failed attempts uh frozen yogurt company called Yeti um a dating thing um which is a car crash and um I I noticed I was doing uh, I was working for an advertising agency in Soho as an account assistant I was really crap at my job I think I was maybe even on performance review. And anyway, at three o'clock every day, there was that kind of afternoon slump. And I noticed that people, this is before the healthy snacking yeah. onslaught, uh, people would go out and, I don't know, buy a chocolate bar and feel really guilty or or there was like shapers or rice cakes and that was pretty much it and felt I feel dissatisfied. And so I, I saw the opportunity of that problem to solve, which was how do you make a healthier snack? That also tastes good. Uh, popcorn, as you said, is is so ubiquitous. Like we've all grown up eating popcorn in cinemas, um, and it's whole grain. It's good for you. Um, it's just kind of all the butter and crap that they put on it that makes it bad. And so I thought if we took popcorn and put amazing seasonings on it, you know, the challenge was how do you take something from, I guess, the cinema floor and elevate it into that everyday snack that you buy in a cafe or a shop or actually you know even in the front row of fashion week we were there um in our first couple of years so it, that was the challenge is how do you 
how do you reposition a snack, uh, reposition something. And one of the things actually I talk about a lot was the importance of competition. When I was about to launch, I met with this guy who's a bit of an expert in the industry and he said, oh, you know, Cassandra, you might want to ask for your job back because the big boys are coming. And what he meant was that like two or three other brands like Tyrrells and PepsiCo were all about to do some form of popcorn. And I remember going home in floods of tears to my mum. And actually it's the best thing that could have happened because competition creates a marketplace. Uh, it helps shift that consumer behavior that we would have found impossible to do completely on our own with a tiny marketing budget. The challenge for us was how do we make sure we're the absolute best? And how, and how did you make it the best? How did you strive for that, you know, that emphasis on product? I think the most important thing, I mean, it sounds obvious. It's a really simple rule. You, you, you have to be obsessed with your product. So you either create something the world wants or you're going to spend your time trying to convince the world they want it. And the second option is brutal and really expensive and very time consuming. So focus on making your product the best it can possibly be and everything else stems from this. Be obsessed with the details. So uh, Proper Chips was our kind of second big launch. And we spent so much time pouring over the texture, the shape, the color, the taste, and it works. People love it. It succeeded our expectations. Richard Reed, one of the innocent founders, said to me early on, keep the main thing the main thing. And it's crazy how often, especially now, people will, uh, people running businesses will get very distracted with, you know, blogs and content and collabs and all these amazing marketing activations or obsessed with how many followers they've got. If you prioritize these, it's, a re it's not a recipe for success, actually. I think everything stems from that absolute focus and obsession with your product. And how many flavors did you have at the beginning? We had, I think it was four. Um, yeah, we had a couple of savory and a couple of sweet. And the savory popcorn it actually still remains. The, the fiery Worcester and sun-dried tomato, I think, was the best one we ever made. But it, it never properly took off, uh, excuse the pun, I think just because the Brits don't love savory popcorn as much. It's just not as much of a thing as it is in America. Yeah. Well, in America, you can you can really struggle sometimes to get sweet popcorn at all. I remember traveling in the States in 2008 and it was yeah, very difficult to get any form of sweet popcorn in cinemas. Um, what was the moment when you thought we've really got something here and we're kind of, we're on our way? Because one of the things that has happened during the pandemic is lots of people have taken on creative projects in food and drink at home and might be thinking now, I wonder if I can scale it a little bit. What was the moment when you thought we've really got something here? I guess, well, t t I, uh, the step before that was uh, when I was sort of planning, you know, how, how are we going to launch? A lot of advice that came to me, uh, came back to me was, why don't you set up like a market stall or, um, get a small footprint in a shop and just, you know, sell your packets, test and learn, get that consumer feedback. And maybe um, 
I don't know, naively, arrogantly, I don't know. I, I, I always wanted to launch with a supermarket as quickly as possible. So the plan was always to be in a position to launch with scale. And this was something that I wanted it to be next to Walkers in a meal deal in Tesco's, you know. Um, and so setting up the supply chain in a way that allowed us to do that was probably the biggest hurdle but the most important bit to get right yeah and 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 I, and I think um setting up that supply chain uh is the bit that is probably the least understood and the hardest and most time consuming I, I was going up and down the country sort of knocking on doors these like industrial estates like big burly men uh I was you know young, <laughs> young woman no, no proven track record uh, excuse me, um, can you just like stop your production line and um, give me a trial? You know, lots of no's. And um, actually, there were so many no's that, you know, you have to be resourceful when you're starting a business. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to have to just try and make it initially myself, at least to just um, get it in people's hands. And so I got a cement mixer and lined it with steel because I needed a way to tumble the popcorn. And then I was watching uh, Top Gear. And they were saying how the way that cars are sprayed, it's like the finest mist that you can get. And I thought, well, that's perfect to apply the oil because then it'll be lighter and healthier. And so I bought a car spraying kit online. And so that's how the first samples were made was me and a cement mixer and a handheld held, um, car spraying kit. Have you got any pictures of that? Um, we have the original cement mixer in the office oh really that's cool yeah and um and then for our 10-year anniversary we actually hired a, a huge industrial cement mixer and um skinned it in our popcorn pattern and went up and down the country basically just like handing out packs from the back of the cement mixer so this cement mixer has become this motif for the brand and the business. And it's, you know, it's meant to be, I guess, a reminder of being resourceful, thinking differently uh, and not losing that entrepreneurial spirit as we scale. Absolutely. And we'll put some of those pictures on our socials at, at Jimmy's Jobs on Instagram and, and Twitter. Um, and on that, the starting the the business and, and being resourceful and so on, you pretty much bootstrapped it all the way um all the way at the beginning can you talk us through about how you got that kind of initial ten thousand pounds together and the way you went about it yeah i mean well it was um very much a case of right i need to find the most flexible hourly rate work i i can find that allows me to work on the business during kind of working hours when I could get hold of people. And so I would I would pretty much do anything I could. So I spent work flyering, uh, dog walking, working at a pub at the weekends. There was a particular job that was like a real low moment for me. It was a flyering job and, and the gig was at the Excel Centre and I turned up and I didn't realise it was a gambling conference. Um, so you walk in and it's like just, uh, as you can imagine, just like, roulette tables and just like a sort of pop-up casino in the Excel centre and I got to my stand that I would be flyering on and it was uh, selling second-hand slot machines and they Gosh. gave me this out they gave me this outfit to go and put on so I went into the loo it was 
an uh, orange cat suit. I mean, really unforgiving. Um, yeah, I was, I was sort of mortified when I put it on. And, and, and as I walked out the loo, I saw a mirror and in massive black letters down the side of my body, it said refurbished slot. Um, which, um, was a real moment of like, what, what am I doing? Um, you know, it's been 18 months. I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. I went home to my mom in tears again. Poor mom. She asked me how they, how much are they paying you? I think it was like 80 quid. And she was like, okay, here's 80 quid. You don't need to go in tomorrow. That there were some real low moments. And, and do you think that sort of element of being an, an outsider, being a female in a very male dominated world, do you think that has partly you know, been what's driven you on, on this way? I think a big part of starting a business is not fearing failure and also being very comfortable with risk. And I think those two factors were very much shaped by the fact that I'd, I'd lost my father, which is kind of the worst thing, you know, you, you can imagine as a child. And so everything else sort of pales in comparison and doesn't seem as sort of daunting or intimidating. And especially at such a formative point in your life. So I wasn't really scared of risk. And as I said, not intimidated by failure. And I think that is, is a big part of the recipe. Yeah. Yeah. Makes you fearless. Totally. Can, yeah. um, I can totally see that. What was your first hire in, in the business? And what was the kind of, you know, what was the process that you kind of went through for that? Well, something that we, I don't, and I say we, my co-founder Ryan, um, you know, one of my best friends, and you know, something we identified day one was the importance of sales. And it's like my biggest bit of advice to anyone starting a business is just prioritize sales over everything else. You know, get, get your supply chain sorted, as I said, because you need to mm -hmm. be able to produce and deliver and, and make the thing. But sales over marketing and and that surprises people because probably my natural leaning is in marketing um, and brand but sales is that kind of blood supply into your business and so we were like knocking down doors tele-sales um turning up in receptions and just waiting to meet that person um who we couldn't get hold of sending popcorn necklaces like what, whatever we could do and our first significant hire was a salesperson so prioritizing sales was something that i think really helped get that momentum in those early months slash years tell us about the popcorn necklaces what were the ideas behind those oh god i mean <laughs> what i was thinking i used to um spend like every evening with my mom again just threading these popcorn necklaces and just sending them to buyers and journalists so just I don't know just to be a point of difference and I think you know just seeking out ways to stand out and make that impactful first impression was a big part of our like way of going about things the other kind of hire that not higher, but the, the other kind of, uh, I guess, recruitment piece that I think was really fundamental to our success was creating an internal creative and design team. In your sort of typical company organogram, you, you don't find that in every business. 
And it was a real secret weapon to us. It allowed us to be super reactive to what was happening in culture, like change our packaging quickly and be very much in control of the brand and, and how we kind of stayed ahead of the category. Yeah, completely. And it has always been such like part of the, partly why I said it's such an iconic brand, right? Is it has always stood out um, for that. And it's interesting you like, you took that resource on, on quite early. And what there's, there's a two part question here, which is, you know, you were ahead of the healthy snacking movement 10 years ago. What do you see the next 10 years in, in kind of food innovation being and the trends that are happening in that, in that space? Um, and also to follow that is, you know, what do you think the, the jobs will be of the future that are on the increase, you think? Well, in terms of food, I think the kind of the traditional routines around food are just like rapidly being dismantled. So this idea of breakfast, lunch and dinner, um, I think is sort of dissipating quite quickly. People have like breakfast on the go. They'll they'll snack much more, uh, maybe like five or six smaller meals. And I think that the relationship of uh, with like function and food is an interesting trend. So not just like performance, like protein, but also um, people increasingly are wanting food to deliver like gut health or maybe anti-aging properties. Like I yeah. think there's, there, there's so much more emphasis on like eking out as much in terms of function and nutrition as like the kind of pointy end of the health trend. And then sort of tied into this idea of the routines dissipating, I think this expectation of like instant so these, these, you know, these 10 minute delivery apps, it's crazy, right? Like it's, it's quicker to get your mayonnaise or whatever you run out of using one yeah. of these apps than it is to walk to the end of the road, which I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I, hands up, I actually use them a lot. I mean, having a 10 month old, it, it does make life easy, but this sort of, you know, if, if something takes longer than 10 minutes now we're like a bit miffed and so this instant expectation and gratification is like i think only gonna continue and people being more aware of impact of gut health and um brain care and all that side of things being being important in terms of what people consume as well yeah yeah so i think to summarize i think just the the, the sharp end of health and just speed <laughs> Um, yeah. be the two, the two kind of major trends that will continue. And what about um, and, and what about jobs? What are the areas that you've seen as a as an entrepreneur and somebody still involved with the business of you know thinking? Well, we wouldn't have hired for that role ten years ago when I started. The sort of the classic one of this being the kind of TikTok social media manager. Definitely, how you're servicing the digital aspect of your business. If you're not a tech business. You still need that kind of digital function and digital expertise in house, increasingly so. I think the other area is around sustainability. You know, if you really want to stay ahead as a business that's scaling, you've got to have that internal expertise of how do you really tackle your carbon footprint in a meaningful, kind of action based way? How are you staying? close to the you know there's so much innovation in that space you need someone really focused in that area 
uh, to stay ahead. Um, and because rightly so, so many of the kind of retailers and distributors have big ESG targets now. That's part of their decision-making when listing new products and brands now is like, you know, what's your sustainability strategy? And then the other area I would say is around culture. I think increasingly the corporate world understands that it's an employee's market right now. And so if you want to attract talent and retain talent, you've got to foster a culture that people want to hang around for. You talk about that culture um, and, you know, being an employee's marketplace, you know, you grew so fast at, you know, one point financial times said you were the fifth fastest growing company in Europe across everything, not just food and drink. How do you kind of keep that culture when you're, when you're growing so fast? I think it's two things, a really clearly defined set of values that are central to everything you do, how you recruit, how you behave. We've had the same set of values since day one. We might have like slightly tweaked the wording, but our values were the starting point for everything. And if you, we had a brutal, I guess, filter for that. So if you didn't share our values, then you were out the door, um, like zero tolerance. Um, and so build your culture from a set of values. Uh, the other thing is that I worry now that we sort of start to overcomplicate culture a little bit and there's like lots of focus on should we get a ping pong table and some bean bags and I don't know, like sort of performative cheap tricks. I think ultimately if you want to attract and retain talent, make your business amazing, like make sure that you're having a positive impact, that you're winning the race, that you're like setting the standards in your category and that creates a culture that people want to be part of. Culture isn't like an appendage to the business. It's very much the business. Yeah. And you became a B Corp sort of quite early on as well, right? So what was the sort of thought process in in that? Was that partly to try and help define the culture as well? No, I, I'd, I'd say it was the other way around. I mean, both myself and Ryan were always passionate about not just growing quickly but growing quickly in the right way and so that means that everyone in the company is a shareholder that it's a company built on trust where um you know it's unlimited holiday and we built the business in that way and then b corp was a fantastic kind of i guess stamp of approval it's almost like okay um we've assessed how you've been running your business and you get the kind of B Corp accreditation, but it's very much that way around for us. And and B Corp is great because it's increasingly, you know, university understood standard that assesses end to end a company, and it's and it's hard it's hard to qualify. So I really support the the movement. I'm very proud to be the first stat company in the world. I think to be B Corp. And who did you have kind of mentoring you on the on the journey? Did you have any female mentors that you particularly looked up to? You know what, sadly, no. Um, I don't think I was particularly exposed to any. And sadly, that uh, at that time, there probably weren't enough in my line of sight. I was very lucky to get a lot of time with Richard Reed, um, one of the innocent founders, and Adam Ballon as well, who's another one of the innocent founders. Uh, eventually became our chairman 
So, uh, you know, I had some amazing mentors, but sadly no women. Yeah. No, it's a common thing. Like Pip Jameson in our second episode talks about how she started targeting, couldn't find any female founders. So started targeting, um, men with daughters, um, as people to get to mentor her, uh, which is just always I love um, that. struck with me. Yeah, I know. Points to Pip's resourcefulness as well, actually. Yeah. <laughs> now to a podcast we'd love to recommend. How to Own the Room, hosted by the stand-up comedian Viv Goscrop. It's a great listen for anyone looking to hone their public speaking skills, whether for real life or on screen. Or if you just want a blast of confidence and inspiration. Viv became a stand-up comedian after 15 years hiding behind her keyboard as a journalist and created this podcast as a place to share lessons about performance and pressure. They've had a wide range of guests, including everyone from Hillary Clinton to Professor Mary Beard. And they've had influential business voices like Dame Helena Morrissey too. It's a conversation about women and regularly delves into why the gender gap still exists virtually in every walk of life. But men get a mention too, and it even recently had my one of my favourite actors, Succession's Brian Cox, no less, talking about the changing face of power. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, what if I'm hardly ever in the room with some of these people, which I have some sympathy for, then you're dealt a lesson with that too, as they have masterclasses on how to own the Zoom and hybrid presentations. It's a superb podcast and really worth checking out. What do you think of the importance of of days like International Women's Day? Is that a big help and focus on having more female founders? I think International Women's Day is a fantastic moment in the year to raise some awareness around some of the kind of crazy stats like only 8 out of 100 CEOs in the FTSE 100 are female. Um, I think there's more CEOs called Dave than there are women uh, female CEOs in the FTSE 100, which is just mental. So, you know, International Women's Day raises awareness around um, just how much further or how, how little progress has been made. I slightly worry that it ends up being a little bit performative and to affect real change that has to happen, I believe, at a kind of corporate policy level. So how are businesses, what, what are businesses doing to really change the statistics? You know, what's their women's health policy around not just uh, childcare and pregnancy, but also things like IVF and menopause and, you know, having your period. There is so much more that businesses can be doing to support women through the, those kind of life chapters to ensure that they continue to feel confident, continue to feel supported, continue to feel ambitious within their careers. What's fantastic about a lot of the female, I guess, forums for, for mentorship and uh, a lot of the kind of female communities that now exist is it, it's, it's great because it creates this kind of um, community of support um, and mentorship. I think that the next step is to expose men 
to more successful women. And what I mean by that is I think about four years ago, I was invited by, I think it was GQ men to talk to a room of men about business. And it wasn't about being a woman in business. It was just to talk to men about business. And it struck me that I think it's the first time that I had spoken publicly in front of a predominantly male audience, which is crazy when you think statistically, most of the corporate world is male dominated. And so like exposing men who still have the power to more examples of successful, inspirational women, I think is a really important part of it. I quite agree. I think that's a really striking point that you make there. Um, and you're now taking a bit of a different role within the business. Um, can you talk us through what kind of that, that involves and, and the sort of the, the kind of exit process that you, you went for through it? Yeah. So, um, well, when you're, when you're selling a business, obviously it's not something that you kind of just wake up and decide it was very much planned, like, uh, I think maybe even 18 months out and, um, Halfway through, I fell pregnant and realized that I didn't want to be showing or be able for anyone to be able to tell that I was pregnant when I was in one of, in those final stages of kind of pitching and negotiating the final deal. And it's something I really thought long and hard about, but I mean, I'm, I'm still utterly convinced that it would have weakened my position if the you know the the potential investors and acquirers uh, knew I was pregnant, um, which is a really sad thing to say, but it is true. I guess I guess being pregnant um, ended up being the thing that that kind of saved me in in some ways, and that I I think I would have found it emotionally unbelievably hard to exit the business and then continue in an operational role seamlessly. So I then had the baby three months after we completed and it was, it, it, I guess it, it forced this natural kind of break where I was able to kind of go away, focus on my baby, which was wonderful and, and, and more than I could have ever imagined and give the business an opportunity to kind of breathe and find its feet without me being like super controlling in everyone's face. And so um, it was the best, you know, in some ways when I, when I, when I became pregnant and I started that process, I, I there were moments I was sort of mortified, but God, I can't believe this is all happening at once. And it actually ended up being the best thing that could have happened because um, as I said, it created this natural break um, for me. Yeah. And it, I'm so glad that it's all kind of, it's all worked out and you look back on it. Um, like that because it's such a positive way to be um and as a as a final question um we ask kind of inspirational guests to kind of pass the mic on to other entrepreneurs that we might not have heard of yet is there anyone that you would particularly recommend that we go out and speak to i mean so many amazing women i think uh the one that pops to mind is Sharmadine reed um, yes she is an absolute formidable uh, leader and visionary and is um, creating 
um, a community where she's not only bringing women together, but economically empowering them to kind of monetize their talents and their skills. And it's, it's, um, it's really powerful what she's trying to do. We have been very close to getting her on and you will now be another reason why I can, uh, I can chase her and see if we can finally get her on. Cause I agree. I think what she's doing is amazing. Say, say hi. <laughs> Definitely. Um, Cassandra, thank you so much for coming on Jimmy's jobs. It's been a, a real pleasure to have you on and, and share your story. Oh, thank you, Jimmy. It's, um, it's really great to speak to you and, um, yeah, congrats on the, the second baby and just enjoy it. brilliant episode there from Cassandra who built one of the most iconic brands in the UK over the last decade. Please do head to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co to check out some of our previous episodes and some of the inspirational women that we have had on the show. Right from Anne Bowden who founded Starling Bank, a unicorn in her 50s, through to Pip Jamieson who's built a no-collar platform for creative workers right through to Catherine Parsons who has built a educational platform in Decoded and Alex the Pledge who has built the cleaning app Hassle and is now trying to take on the property world by building Resi. There's so many amazing female entrepreneurs out there that are trying to build and improve the lives of so many people and we are desperate to showcase them. And as I said at the beginning, I make a plea that we get a lot of people that write to us wanting to appear on the podcast or wanting their clients to appear. We always welcome those pitches because it can be very difficult to know what's going on throughout the whole country, particularly when it comes to growing companies. But as I said, we've had close to 200 pitches over the last 18 months and 98% of them are for males to come on the show. So we'd love to have more female guests. So if you or you know of somebody that would make a brilliant guest, then email us at hello at jobsofthefuture.co and the team will come back to you. Thanks very much for listening.